Well, this morning we want to look at the favor that God gives His people. And uh, we want to look at the renewal that God promises to His people. This week, or this uh, last few weeks, um, a major world event has been happening uh, in the world of soccer, uh, World Cup. It happens every four years. Yesterday, since it was Saturday, I decided to watch for the first time a full match. Um, and uh, it was a game between France and Argentina. In the group stage, Argentina really, really struggled. At one point, they were on the verge of uh, going home and not being able to qualify uh, for the round of 16s. They barely, barely made it through the group. And uh, yesterday, they faced France, a major and really well-developed team uh, that's doing really well and uh, looking anxiously to see how a struggling Argentina would face a ferocious France soccer team. Well, halfway through the game, it was 2-1 to one for Argentina. Unbelievable that a team that struggled through the group would uh, be now threatening to send home a, a solid and uh, mature and strong France team. And I thought, what a great comeback for Argentina. I started rooting for Argentina simply because of seeing their comeback. Um, well, as the second half of the game unfolded, what seemed to be like a great, great comeback and a renewed energy on the side of Argentina proved to be a failure as France won in a solid and major way. We, we love great comebacks. And sometimes when you see even a, a, a struggling situation, a, a, a hopeless situation, come back and resurface and, and prove to be a, uh, a success, uh, you know, your heart just gets excited for those who, who experience that kind of a comeback. But sometimes comebacks in life are short-lived, as we saw the game yesterday with Argentina. They're temporary, and in the end, we fall back into the experience of brokenness, loss, and disappointment. Friends, as we consider God's promise for renewal, the comeback that He promises is unlike any of the comebacks we might experience in this world. His comeback, His renewal is not temporary, is not a comeback and a renewal that will eventually fail, but rather it's a comeback that will ultimately Succeed, And we see that point here in Isaiah 50, uh, 62. If you have your Bibles, would you open God's Word to Isaiah chapter 62. For those of you who are new to our congregation, we are working through the book of Isaiah. We're taking it one chapter at a time, and we are continuing our sermon series. For those of you who wonder why did I mention a soccer illustration, because it happens every four years. Don't expect another one for another four years. Let's go to God's Word and think and care and hear well what God speaks to His people. Here's God's Word. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings of the earth your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem 
and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go in prayer. Ask God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear it. Father, you indeed are a God who has promised a great renewal for your people. And this word is a testimony to what you have declared to do. Father, would you speak to your people in a way that would renew us? Would you speak to your people in a way that would bring uh, a new life to those who are still dead in their sins? Would bring encouragement and, and revival to those who are discouraged and distraught? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do so for the glory of your great name and for the encouragement of your people. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. God has been speaking and promising a great renewal uh, in the second half, or in this second part of, or the last part of the book of Isaiah. We saw particularly in chapter 61, the previous chapter, uh, that God has spoken specifically and directly with a lot of details about the renewal that he was going, going to send out by his uh, anointed one. In chapter 61, we saw three truths about God's renewal. And in this chapter, in chapter 62, we see that story of God's renewal continued. Just to refresh and to remember, in chapter 61, uh, we, saw, we saw three truths about this renewal that God promised. That God's renewal comes through His anointed one, who ultimately is Jesus. God's renewal affects God's people. Um, and God's renewal is God's gift. God will cause righteousness, God will cause praise to sprout up before the nations. Well, as we move on to chapter 62, the speech of the anointed one continues. He continues to speak about this future, uh, future renewal that God promises to bring. And this morning, there's two more truths that God, the anointed one, uh, speaks to us about the renewal that God brings to his people. The first truth that we will look at is that the great renewal is certain. The great renewal is certain. The second truth we will see is that the great renewal is delayed, but engaging. The great renewal is delayed, but engaging. Let's look at each of these points and see how God wants his people to latch on, to embrace, to believe um, with their hearts, with their minds, with their lives the renewal that God promises to bring to His uh, people. The great renewal is certain. As we begin chapter 62, we may wonder who's speaking. Uh, well, the same issue was in chapter 61. And, and likely, uh, the same person that began in chapter 61 is speaking also in chapter 62, the anointed one. It's likely that he's continuing the speech here. And if in chapter 61 he continued or he told us that he was sent by God to bring good news to the poor, good news to the captives, to, to free them, to liberate them. Uh, if he is the one sent by God to proclaim liberty and to declare a year of the Lord's favor, here in chapter 62, the Anointed One presents his determination to continue to speak and to continue to labor until the outcome of the Lord's favor comes about. And then he gives us details about what the outcome of the year of the Lord's favor looks like. Now, it's a great encouragement for God's people to hear that the great renewal that God promised through his anointed one is certain, 
even though it's a future reality. Now, what guarantees do we have that in this passage that, that God's renewal is certain, that it will come? What guarantee do we have? Well, the answer is the intercession of the anointed one. Did you notice that in verse 1, the speaker, the anointed one, says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Till when? Until when will this lack of quietness go on? Until when will the anointed one keep speaking and keep acting? Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. In other words, the anointed one was sent by God not merely to announce the good news of the gospel. He was sent by God to accomplish the renewal. He was sent not only to proclaim the work of God, but he was also sent to do the work of God. And in this passage, the anointed one tells us that he will not stop working and speaking until that renewal is completed. In other words, he is not like, like a, an agent sent out to deliver a news and then retrieves back, goes home, and just lets it sit, or sit there and see what will happen to it. No, this is a messenger that pledges to be engaged, to be involved in this rebuilding until the work is complete. He's not going to leave the construction site with the construction work unfinished. Friends, we have just begun, uh, or others have begun, a, a major construction uh, right next to our property. And you already see signs of that. Imagine if the developer started the work and halfway through the project just stopped and left the project, sort of leaving it up to us to complete it. No, that makes no sense. Well, spiritually, the same reality is given in this passage by the one who's speaking, by the anointed one. He says, God sent me to, to, to declare a work. God sent me to do a work. I will not stop talking and I will not stop working until it's completed. That's the guarantee that we have. Sometimes we might be discouraged because we don't see the, the great renewal coming soon enough. We might be discouraged because we don't see the progress of that renewal in other people's lives or in our own lives. Friends, take heart in this, that the one who promised the great renewal of God's people promised not to stop speaking or working until God's work is completed. That's the encouragement that we get in this beginning of the ver verse 1 in chapter 62. But what will that renewal involve? What will it do to God's people? God's renewal will give uh, God's people a new visibility, a new status, and a new name. Each of these are subpoints to the first major point of the text. We see that God's people, when, when this renewal will come, it will give them a new visibility, a new status, and a new name. Let's look at each of these. In first one, uh, God's renewal will bring a new visibility. In verse 2, we are told that the nations will see the righteousness of God's people. And even kings will see the glory of the people of God. Now, why is this important to know? Because it tells us that God's renewal is not going to be just some private experience. Just some sort of secretive thing. Just you and God, keeping it to yourself. It will become widely known. It will become glorious. Sometimes people think that their spiritual experiences is only their own business. That it's a very private experience. But here God makes it very clear that the, His renewal, that He brings, He promises to bring God's people, will become so visible that all the nations will see it. That even the kings will come to recognize the glory that God gives to His redeemed people. Because verse 2, nations will see your righteousness and all your kings, your glory. Friends, ask yourself, do you prefer to hold on to a view of, of spiritual life that is only a, a private version of that spiritual life? Do you think about pursuing righteousness only in your own private ways? 
Now, certainly we should not be like the Pharisees who love to just show off their righteousness uh, just so people can see them. I get that. We know the trap of, of the Pharisees who are righteous only for the sake of people, but not privately. I get that. But, but the other extreme is also dangerous to think that your righteousness is only a private, personal matter, and it's not supposed to be seen by others around you. That it's not supposed to be public. That is also a ditch that we can easily fall into. And God says here, when He will renew His people, it will be visible. It will have a world-renowned visibility. So don't think of your Christian life just as a private walk that no one is supposed to know of or see or, or be able to experience and, and affirm. God's renewal will bring a new visibility. God's renewal, a second characteristic of this renewal, will bring a new status. Look at verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. What a beautiful promise to declare to God's people that when God will restore them, there'll be a beautiful crown and a royal diadem. Now, this is an interesting imagery to be described as a crown of beauty and a royal diadem meant being viewed as having kingly worth, royal value, dignity. While being described as a crown, as a royal diadem, might make us feel important, and there's reason to make us feel so, the fact that these are described as being held, not just in a display case, these are actually held in God's hand, it's a, it's a crown of glory in God's hand. It's a royal diadem in God's hand. Shows us or indicates that these two pictures of what God's people are, are ultimately not about God's people, but about God. The God who holds them in His hand. He has made His people to be such that they prove His excellency, His authority, and His power to transform lowly people into a glorious victorious, authoritative crown and royal diadem. God's people will be the proof of God's power to renew and to give new dignity, new value, and new worth. Have you considered that the renewal and the salvation of God's people is ultimately not about us, but about God's power and glory to transform and to make His people into a glorious experience. Yes, the redeemed are described as a crown, as a royal diadem, but they are such in God's hands. He brought His people to become a crown. He brought His people to, to be turned into a royal, kingly diadem. They are described as having such worth because of God's worth and God's power. God's renewal will bring God's people to a new status. But thirdly, God's renewal will bring God's people a new name. Look at verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. Now, it's interesting that a third promise of this renewal is described through a change of names. What's the big deal about changing someone's name and telling someone that that they will be called by a new name? What's the big deal about that? You might say, really? Being, being given a new name, that's a big deal? Yes, it's a very big deal, especially in the Bible. You know why? You remember the people of Israel? When, when God called the first patriarch, Abraham, called him out of his father's house, promised that God would make him a big nation, the father of many nations, when God made him that promise in chapter in Genesis 17, he not only told him that he will make Abraham the father of many nations, he gave him the proof of that. And the proof of that was going to be a change of name from Abram to Abraham. So that every time Abraham will now be called Abraham, he would remember why his name was changed. Because God promised to make him the father of many nations. Oh, friends, 
changing the name, especially in the Bible, uh, is something that God had promised. He'd done it to Jacob, to Israel. And he promised in the book of Revelation that he will give his people a new name. Oh, friends, a new name had to do with more than just calling someone by a new word. A new name meant a new identity, a new calling, a new future. Oh, friends, in God, in God's plan, when he says to his people here in Isaiah 62 that he's changing their name from desolate, from deserted, and the new name will be my delight is in her. Prior to this, God's people were called desolate and, 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 and deserted. And this was a picture of, of a marital situation that had become broken. A woman whose husband left her. The feelings of abandonment, the feelings of being left alone with no protection, with no provision. It is hard to put into words the depth of brokenness that a woman might feel if going through those circumstances. And yet God used that picture, desolate, deserted, to describe the people of Israel when God took them out of their land. He took them out because of their sin, because of their rebellion. But now God says, listen, I am going to change your name from that experience of abandonment, desolation, deserted. I want to give you a new name. And the new name is... My delight is in you. Married. The land is married. And and here you might wonder, why is the land married? Well, because earlier in Isaiah, when God took out the people of Israel, the sons of daughter and daughters of Israel, and took them out to Babylon, he called them as a desolate place, a desolate woman, as a widow. Why? Because the people have been taken out of the land. And now the picture of marriage is being brought back in, Because God says he will repopulate his people. He will grow his people again. He will make his people have life again. Oh, friends, God promises that he will restore his people. That he will bring life back to his people. And the new name that God gives them is like his delight will be set on his people. They must know that the great renewal that God promises them is based not on a change that has taken place in them, but a change that has taken place in God. God is changing his affections from from showing wrath towards them, punishment as they well deserved, to changing his affections to love towards them. Now you might say, I thought God doesn't change. Well, it's true. In some sense, God does not change. But there's also a sense in which here in the, in the unfolding of the story of Israel, there is a development in God's affections towards his people. While they were rebellious, while they were opposing God, God has promised, he has told them ahead of time that he would bring the curses uh, that he had promised against his enemies. He would bring them against his own people if they continued to be unfaithful towards the Lord. So there was a time in the history of God's people when God showed wrath, when God showed his punishment against them. But that punishment, that wrath, was then continued by a change of heart in God's own heart. Humanly speaking, we see it as a change of heart. In God's eternal plan, there is no change. But in the unfolding of of the story in time, God changed his attitude his affection towards his people, from wrath to affection and love. Friend, salvation and restoration is granted to God's people totally because of the kindness of God. Notice that it was God who would choose to give his people this new name. They didn't have the authority to give themselves this new name. God had to give it to them, and God chose to give it to them. God had the authority to give them this new name. And coupled with the, with the name of, of the Lord's affection is on God's people, coupled with that is also the Lord's rejoicing over his people. Look at verse 5. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now we often are told in the Bible to rejoice in the Lord. But here, 
we are told that God will rejoice over his people. And to illustrate what kind of rejoicing God will have or has over his people, the illustration that we get is a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride on their wedding day. That's the kind of rejoicing that we are described that God has over his people. Oh, dear friends, the Lord's rejoicing is, is a rejoicing that, that is, is described with one of the greatest joys that human beings can experience. The wedding day. The anointed one committed himself to act and speak until this renewal will fully be accomplished. And the certainty of God's renewal is seen in, a, in the new situation, in the new, in the new uh, visibility that God will give his people, in the new status, and the new name that God will give his redeemed people. And all of that is because of the change that God will experience towards his people, from changing the, from wrath to changing to love and affection. Oh, dear friends, this is indeed the, the great certainty that we have, that the renewal that God promises will not fail. It's because of God's affection that he sets upon his people. The great renewal, second of all, we see that is also delayed, but engaging. Speaking about the great renewal that God is promising his people, he has assured them that the renewal is certain. But throughout this text, we also get hints that the arrival of the renewal is not immediate, that it will be taking a while, that it will be delayed. And when we hear that something is delayed, what do we do? When you hear that a project is delayed, when you hear that a deadline is delayed, when you hear that something that you expected to happen today is going to happen sometime in the future, what do you do when things are delayed? We are tempted to put it off. We're tempted to take our minds from it. We're tempted to continue to do business as usual because, hey, it's delayed. But that is not what God wanted his people to do. Even though the great renewal has a later delivery date, God wants his people to be engaged and well cared for in the interim time of waiting. So the anointed one provides leaders who care well for God's people in the interim and God calls his people to commit themselves to prayer as they wait for God's timing to bring about the great renewal as God promised. So let's look at, at this great renewal that is delayed but engaging. The anointed one appoints spiritual leaders to care for God's people. Remember how in verse 1, the anointed one committed himself not to be silent and not to be still until the righteousness of God's people will shine brightly? Remember that in verse 1? Well, in verse 6, the anointed one appoints watchmen to watch over God's people. Look at verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. Interestingly about this appointment of watchmen, it's again unclear. We might say who is speaking in verse 6. Is it Isaiah or is the anointed one? I think it's the anointed one. He is speaking here because he is the one who has the authority to appoint watchmen to watch over God's people. In Ezekiel 33, we see the picture of, of a watchman as described to, um, to talk about the prophetic office. Here in Isaiah 62, it's clear that the watchmen are called to watch over the life and the safety of God's people. But who appoints them to this role? Who has the authority to appoint watchmen over the people? It's the anointed one. It's God. Uh, friends, we should remember that spiritual leaders who are charged to give oversight to God's people are never self-appointed. They're appointed by God. The watchmen who are now provided um, to give oversight to God's people, um, we see them described as the exact opposite of the spiritual leaders that God um, challenged in chapter 56 of Isaiah. Remember a few chapters ago, God exposed the, the 
broken and corrupt spiritual leaders that, that the people of God had. Israel's watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Those are the, the people that, that were leading, humanly speaking, God's people. Here the anointed one appoints new watchmen. And the one characteristic about them is they will never be silent. Never. It says in chapter 62, verse 6, all the day and all the night they shall never be silent. It's part of the role of spiritual leaders who are appointed by God is not only to feed God's people but to defend them from spiritual danger. And part of that defending is to call out the danger. Sometimes the watchmen have to call out the danger in the middle of the night. That's calling comes in a very inopportune time, very inappropriate time. Such calling may be, uh, may be at a time when we don't want it. But be sure of this, that the anointed one has taken the initiative to appoint zealous and committed watchmen to watch over God's people for the sake of protecting them. I love how one of the reformers said about this passage, the Lord forbids them, these watchmen, to be silent, for he wishes them to be diligent and attentive. And in this, he shows how great is the care which he takes about the safety of the church. This passage testifies that it's a remarkable kindness of God when we have faithful pastors who take care of us. Friends, it's such a joy to labor alongside Ryan McGill and Taylor Worley as shepherds of this congregation. It's such a joy. And I pray that the Lord would raise up others more among us to be added to the number of the of the watchmen whom God appoints and calls to watch over his people. Praise God that he has this care to appoint men who would have this assignment from the Lord, that we would recognize that care from the Lord. But the anointed one also calls the leaders and the people not only to give oversight over God's people in the interim, but also calls them to prayer until the Lord fulfills this great renewal. Look at verse 6. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise. This is a call to prayer. In other words, the watchmen are not only called to watch over God's people and to speak to them, to warn them of danger, but they're called to speak constantly to the Lord, to give themselves the ministry of prayer, seeking the Lord until he brings about his purposes with his people. In order for the watchmen to do this, in order for watchmen to give themselves the ministry of prayer, they must be convinced that it is the Lord who will make his people become the praise of the earth. Often, the life of God's people looks more like a ruin and desolation. It looks more like a work of construction site. But that does not mean that we are called to abandon or to look for the greener areas to look for the places where the grass is already blooming and construction is done. Oftentimes we have the, this tendency to think that the grass is greener on the other side. And oftentimes the place where God has us looks like a construction site. Well, friends, we are going to be a construction site for the next 18 months, physically speaking, right next to us. But I also spiritually, we're still a construction site. We're called to pray. Because God is the one who's going to make his people to become the praise of the earth. We're called to pray and see God together. That's why as elders, we not only give ourselves to the ministry of prayer, but we also want to lead this congregation to be intentional in praying and seeking God together. That's why we desire to do the evening service as a, as a service that's focused together, a corporate service, calling the congregation to pray together. Friends, if you've not considered attending the evening service, I'm going to call on you to consider giving yourself less rest on Sunday afternoons so that we might give God no rest until he accomplishes his purposes with us. Notice how the anointed one describes the ministry of prayer. Give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Oh, friends, prayer in some way is described as 
seeking to give God no rest until he, work, until he accomplishes his purposes. Again, when we think about Jerusalem or hear the word Jerusalem in, in these last few chapters of Isaiah, we should not think of earthly Jerusalem merely. As seen in chapter 60, the restoration God promised to Zion or to Jerusalem is a restoration that is out of this world, a restoration in which a city will not need the sun for its light. This means that Isaiah is not talking about waiting for a, a physical rebuilding of an earthly Jerusalem, but he's talking about waiting for the appearing of that heavenly Jerusalem, that eternal city that God is preparing for his redeemed people. Until that city arrives, we are to give ourselves to prayer and asking God to continue to labor until he accomplishes his purposes. This means that prayer is the activity of the people of God who are waiting confidently and expectantly for God to make that glorious city become the praise of the earth. Friends, have you ever considered that our prayers should never be just about our immediate needs, but that they should be moved by our anticipation about that glorious, eternal reality that God has promised to bring His people? Friends, do you think of prayer as like going to a vending machine where you put in your prayer and then expect God to give you something back right away, something that's immediate, something that's needed right away? Now, it's true that our prayers should be filled with any petitions, and even the most mundane petitions, God says, bring them to me. There's no prayer request that is small enough for God uh, that, that he was not interested in hearing. So on one side, we want to encourage people to bring to the Lord any petitions, even the smallest ones. But at the same time, I think there's a, a correction to, to bring out that if our prayers are only about our little petty needs, our immediate needs, our instant needs. And if our prayers are not filled also with a sense of longing for the eternal purposes of God that God promised to bring, if our purposes are not, our prayers are not driven by the glorious purposes that God promised for all creation, it is possible, dear friends, that our prayers are consumed just with our own self-centered immediate needs. I want to recommend to you a, a book to consider for your own growth and in understanding growing in your prayer life. Uh, a book written by D.A. Carson, um, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's a book that studies the prayers of Paul and what we can learn from how Paul prayed so that our own prayers might be guided and led and grown in, in to, to be guided by the agenda of God's eternal purposes. The anointed one here appoints watchmen over Jerusalem to watch over, to protect God's people. But a key part of their protection and guidance is a ministry of prayer as spiritual overseers call, pray for God's people and call God's people to pray and seek the Lord in prayer and seek to ask the Lord to bring His eternal purposes to fruition. The anointed one also reminds God's people of God's oath in verse 8 and 9, we are told that God has taken an oath. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. This is an interesting oath. It makes sense, only if we remember it in the context of the curses that God pronounced upon his people should they rebel against him. This particular curse... Um, is, or this particular verse in Isaiah 62, is a reverse of the curse given in the book of Leviticus um, or in the book of Deuteronomy, where God says that should they rebel against him, not only will God take him out of the land, but before that, God will give the produce of the land to be enjoyed by their enemies. Here, we see the opposite of that. Here God takes an oath that is opposite of the curse of Deuteronomy. The, the, the oath that God gives is that the people whom God will redeem will never, ever lose their produce to the foreign nations to enjoy 
while they themselves will be destitute of them. It's a promise that the blessings that God will give to his people will be enjoyed by God's people. The curse will be taken away. But there's a positive promise here as well. In verse 9, But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Notice that the redeemed people are not only promised to enjoy the work of their hands, but they will enjoy it with praising God. They will enjoy it not in a self-centered way. They will not enjoy it in an individualistic way. They will enjoy it corporately in the courts of God's sanctuary. Did you pick up on that little detail? That God will bless his people, but they will enjoy it not in a self-centered way, but in a God-centered way and in a corporate way. Friends, this means that the blessings that God promises his redeemed people are to be engaging our hearts in praise to God and in corporate worship. Friends, are the blessings God gives you keeping you away from God or keeping you away from praising God or keeping you away from being more connected with the people of God? If so, something is wrong in how you're using or how you're responding to those blessings. Because God promised to bless His people in a way that turns His people towards praise and towards corporate worship. Friends, part of what it means to be a member of this congregation is a commitment to live out our lives no longer isolated, no longer self-centered, no longer by ourselves, but in community with the people that God has redeemed. Part of what it means to be a member of this congregation is to encourage one another to spend our lives and what God gives us for the sake of Christ as a gathered people, not just individually, not just self-centeredly. Indeed, God promises that His people, they will once again enjoy God's blessings in a renewed reality, and those blessings will be God-centered, and they will be corporate-centered, church-centered, sanctuary-centered. There will be no more individualistic, me-focused room for enjoying God. It will be a corporate experience. If some of you hear this and are disappointed to hear this focus on God and focus on, on church life as part of even the, the purpose of being blessed by the Lord, some of you are disappointed to hear that. That's an important notice. Take notice of that disappointment in your heart. It may be an indicator that the heart has not truly understood the gospel of God's grace. The grace of God frees us from living our lives centered on ourselves. The essence of sin is to dethrone God and put ourselves on the throne of our lives. When God redeems his people, that redemption becomes evident even in how God's people enjoy the blessings God gives them. Well, friends, if you have not experienced the gospel that frees us from the love of money, if you have not experienced a gospel that frees us from the self-centered focus of our lives, if you have not experienced a gospel that frees us from the rebellion that says to God, I want to live life on my own. Well, friends, I'm calling you today to consider the gospel that frees us from rebellion, from dethroning God. I call you to consider the gospel that puts God back on His throne. And that gospel can only be experienced as we recognize our sinfulness, as we recognize our rebellion, and as we turn away from it and ask Christ to save us from our own corrupt nature and enable us to love God and to serve Him and to respond to Him with a selfless love, with a joy that God alone can put in our hearts, that praises God and gives ourselves for the well-being of others. Oh, friends, the gospel is not just a decision we make for Jesus. The gospel is a change of heart that God accomplishes through the proclamation of the news about Christ. And that gospel transforms our hearts so that we become people who enjoy God more than ourselves and who, who bless God's people more than hoarding it for ourselves. The anointed one finally commands leaders to prepare God's people for the journey. Look at verse 10. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. 
in reading this verse, it appears that God might be speaking here still to the watchmen, to the spiritual leaders. God calls them to be the ones who lead the way so that the rest of God's people could also follow the path of leaving Babylon and journeying to the city that God has promised to restore and establish. Here in Isaiah 62, it becomes clear that God is not speaking only about the physical restoration, but about the announcement of God's salvation that is being given not just to the people of Israel, but to all the peoples. In verse 10, God commands that a signal be given to all the peoples. Oh, friends, that's why we have encouraged Macy to go on a mission trip to Romania last two weeks, to give a, a signal to another people that God's salvation has been declared, that God's salvation is unfolding. Oh, friends, the reason why we as a congregation want to give and support missions, not just here in Austin, but throughout the earth, is because we want to make clear and raise up a banner, a signal for all the peoples. But the anointed one also assures us of the final destiny of God's people. You know how chapter 62 describes the final destiny of God's people? By telling us of how they would be called. And here again, we find, finalize or finish chapter 62 with a new set of names or a new list of names. Names are a big deal in this chapter. It started with telling us that God is going to give his people a new name, and it ends with now telling us what their names will be. Four more names that are given to God's people. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Oh, friends, make no mistake. The people whom God is saving for himself, he, God, is calling them a holy people. There has been a time in recent decades when the idea of a holy people drew very bad connotations. It communicated to others that people would think themselves as perfect so Christians have often restrained from using the word a holy people to describe ourselves. We prefer to think of ourselves as sinners saved by grace. And that's a true statement. That's a good statement. It, it, it indeed points to the, the imperfections that we still continue to have while at the same time declare that God has redeemed us and is sanctifying us. It's a good word. But at the same time, the Bible tells us that God calls his people and gives them a new name, and that name is a holy people. In other words, if it bothers us that God calls us a holy people, something might be off. Not with God, but with us. If you don't enjoy pursuing holiness... Something is seriously wrong with your heart. Please, would you come and talk to me at the end of the service if somehow this label, a holy people, bothers you? One of the reasons why we are a church, one of the things we are called to encourage one another as members of this congregation is to encourage one another to grow in holiness. Why? Because God has given us a new name, a holy people. Now, I get it. We don't do it perfectly. We falter back. We do it inconsistently. We are still struggling with a sinful, rebellious nature in us. But make no mistakes, dear friends. God made it very clear. He has given his people a new name, a holy people. You cannot be saved without also receiving this new name. You can't just get Jesus for salvation out of hell without also embracing the new identity of holiness that God calls his people to pursue. So ask yourself, are you excited when you hear that the first word, first name God gives you is a holy people? Does that excite you? Or does that trouble you? If it troubles you, come and talk to me. I would love to figure out and help you figure out what's going on in the heart, why you might be hesitant to that name. We would love to help one another to embrace that name because God is the one who gives it to us. And then the, the last three names are a little more easy to chew and to embrace. A redeemed of the Lord, a, call, a called out or a called sought out people, and a city not forsaken. Friends, from verse 6 to 12, we have seen how the anointed one prepares God's people for the long journey towards a great renewal. 
Even though the renewal is certain, the timing is delayed. That's why the anointed one appointed spiritual leaders to watch and care well for God's people. And he called them and he called God's people to give themselves the ministry of prayer, calling on God consistently, giving him no rest until he brings about that great renewal. This means, dear friends, that even though the renewal is delayed, we got business to do. We cannot continue to do business as usual. We cannot continue to just worry about our own lives until that renewal date uh, will finally arrive. No, it is delayed, but it calls us to engage, waiting for, preparing for, anticipating, and declaring that that renewal is coming. Oh, friends, I pray that as a people, we would be a, a, a gathering of people who are committed and certain that God's renewal will happen that God's renewal engages our activities, engages our life together, so that indeed we are a people who make it known to the nations that God is coming. Would you pray with me? Father, you have made it so clear in your word that you are committed to your people, to a people who have rebelled against you, to a people who have turned their backs against you, to a people who rightly and justly deserve your punishment, and yet, O oh Lord, you have made a determination to turn the affections of your heart towards your people, to renew them, to restore them, to give them a new identity, a new future, and a new inheritance. So, Lord, we pray that as we look forward to that renewal, we pray that we would be a people who would be certain of it. We pray that we would be a people engaging in, in working towards it, anticipating it, and looking forward for its arrival. Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would renew us, even now, and give us the strength to look forward to the final deliverance and promise and arrival of that renewal. When that day comes, we pray that we may be found ready. In the name of Christ, we pray.